Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Battle of Hastings and its aftermath nearly wiped out the leading families of Anglo-Saxon England. So what happened to the children left behind by this conflict? A Time's Best Book of 2022, Eleanor Parker's Conquered, The Last Children of Anglo-Saxon England, is now available for the first time in paperback and as an audiobook. From sagas and saints' lives to chronicles and romances, Parker draws on a wide range of medieval sources to tell the stories of these young men and women and the role they played in developing a new Anglo-Norman society. Order your paperback copy of the book everyone's been talking about directly from the publishers, Bloomsbury, at www.bloomsbury.com forward slash conquered, or start listening to the audiobook on Audible today. to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Now, Lucy, it's the summer. It is officially the summer, it's I think. It's officially the summer and we are doing the first of our summer roundups. Summer specials. I like to think of it as some, like the Beano <laughs> or insert favourite comic of choice. For me, it was definitely the Beano. You know, when you get the summer special and it's just, it's really exciting. Yes. I would like to hope. Yes. It's just like that. <laughs> you think it's not like that? You think of the Beano and I think of a summer special as a sort of end of the peer variety show. Also very good. Yeah. yeah. So actually we've set the bar far too high, <laughs> I fear. Far too high. But we have picked some of our favourites of the year thus far. Yes. And things that go well together as well. So yes, a chance, a little chance to to revisit some moments. And so if you're getting ready for your holidays... There's a number of things you've got to work out, such as most importantly, what books to take, what to read. We made lots of suggestions in our summer reading roundup. Brilliant suggestions, actually. Brilliant suggestions, which I imagine everybody has immediately taken on board. But we also found um, a number of suggestions made by people, recommended by, wait for it, people like Ernest Hemingway and Philip Roth and Michael Chabon. F. Scott Fitzgerald, the sort of things that they recommended. So if you wanted to take some classics of the beach, we thought we'd uh, help you out and tell you who likes what. What were you struck by? I have to say that we're just, we didn't do this research completely ourselves, did we? Well, we didn't do it ourselves at all. No. 
<laughs> no, we didn't. No, we were helped by LitHub, shall we say. We were, who have done the brilliant spade work of yes. gathering together all these lists of what people recommended and what writers read on their holidays and recommended themselves and they've synthesized them and seen the crossovers that's the interesting thing isn't it so when they thought well who and this is the winner this is the most recommended book is Madame Bovary which I must say is that a holiday read well no hang on a minute Alex I don't think they are holiday reads I think we're just thinking about holidays these are just books that are recommended by writers so writerly books if you like so Madame Bovary's pretty, she's pretty much up there, isn't she? I suppose she would. Well, she certainly was, if you are Ernest Hemingway, or indeed Brett Easton Ellis, or Laurie Moore, or Claire Missoud, or Mary Gateskill, or Helen Fielding, or Philip Roth. It's quite a broad church of writers there. They all recommended Flaubert's Madame Bovary. I mean, let's be honest, Proust comes second with In Search of Lost Time. And everybody recommends that, don't they? Doesn't mean they've read it. <laughs> Sorry, Henry Miller. So sue me, Henry Miller. Do you think they do? Do you think they're like, oh, you must read that. And then after that, maybe I will as well. Yes. No, he's, you know, he's usually up there. It's a good set of people, though, here. It's Michael Chabon, Harjin, Claire Massoud, Henry Miller, as you say, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gary Steingart and A.S. Byatt. That's a good list. That seems like, you know, if they think it's fun to read. I mean, they didn't say it was fun. If they think it's worth reading, though, I have to say, of course, they're not the first people to say that. Now, coming in third is someone. Well, there's joint third for a lot of people. But the first joint third is Middlemarch, which is, you know, you've got to say would probably a bit of a given. Well, Zadie Smith certainly thought so, we discover, as yeah. did Jennifer Egan. And also tied, if you like, with George Eliot is Gabriel Garcia Marquez, A Hundred Years of Solitude, which is a bit of a blast from the past. I know that's a stupid thing to say. They're all blasts from the past. But it, I feel like, you know, that was very sort of voguish at one point and maybe went out of favour a bit. Does that make sense? Well, maybe, but maybe also coming back because, you know, contemporary writers, I mean, writers writing right now, like Yagyasi, for example, have recommended a hundred years of solitude. So, yeah. you know. And so did Irvin Welsh, which is, you know, I mean, why not? It's a wonderful book, actually. I would I would love to read it again. And then another book you might have heard of, Ulysses by James Joyce. Take that to the beach. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can. You can, I suppose. But I look, let's look at some of the books that are recommended that are, are less widely read. You know, they're the less obvious things. They're not the Anna Karenina and and the you know the great Pride Gatsby and Prejudice yeah, and the Pride and Prejudice. Enough. You know, Bernard Malamud, for example, recommended by Jonathan Franzen and Philip Roth. Wonderful, wonderful writer. Perhaps not as widely read as he should be. Buddenbrooks says Philip Pullman. I mean, doesn't actually say take it to the beach, and I would say perhaps. Not Zora Neale Hurston's fabulous book, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a pretty amazing, amazing list. So, tuck your Henry Miller recommended Andre Breton in your back pocket or your now Donald Barthelm. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not taking Journey to the End of Night by Celine anywhere, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> took it somewhere when I was 16 and that's me done there are also someone's recommending Henry Miller again who seems to have recommended half the books so maybe you're right maybe he hadn't read them all or maybe he had he's recommending the Decameron by Boccaccio which is pretty 
pretty scholarly. Yeah, I see a book here and it's reminded me of something that happened to me really, really recently. Gulliver's Travels. Oh, Henry Miller, here he is again. Couldn't stop (laughs) recommending books, famous for it, but also Borges uh, has recommended uh, Gulliver's Travels. And I had recently a house guest uh, and it was somebody I didn't didn't know. They were they were coming to stay, a colleague of, of my husband's and we hadn't met. And it turned out to be an enormous Swift fan and arrived with a gift for me. And the gift was an edition of Gulliver's Travels with illustrations by Arthur Rackham. Isn't that the most lovely thing you've ever heard of as a present? So much better than a bottle of wine. (laughs) You can get a bottle of wine anywhere. Well, yes. I mean, I'm not saying don't bring a bottle of wine. Anyway, there we are. Food for thought. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And we've got more food for thought coming up, haven't we? We have. So the things that we've been looking back to this week speak of both failure and mastery. Earlier in the year, we talked to Stephen March about his book on writing and failure. And we also talked to Nat Segnit, who had reviewed Adam Gopnik's book, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. Enjoy our look back to earlier in the year. It gave me comfort to know that, like, James Joyce couldn't get a job at a technical college, even after he'd written Dubliners, or that Herman Melville, you know, he wrote a better book basically every outing he went, and he slowly but surely sold less and less until he ended up, you know, unable to publish and self-publishing Civil War poetry in a zine. For some reason, it's those stories that have always given me comfort. And so I had a bunch of them in my head, and during COVID, I thought I'm, I'm just going to stitch them all together and I'm going to figure out what connects all these stories of failure. Well, you did. I mean, there's lots and lots of stories. I found this book extremely comforting. It was a sort of form of companionship, really, I felt from it. But you do more than that. You are theorising, speculating, probing the edges of what this might actually mean, what failure might mean to us. You do say that you yourself kept note of your own rejections, but stopped when you got to 2000. Yeah. And I mean, that was, that was in my mid twenties. I think one of the things we're, you know, living now in a digital age is that we, you can accumulate so much more rejection because you can submit so much more widely. I mean, I can bear, I can remember, I can, I can only barely remember, but when people actually used to send physical manuscripts to places with like self-addressed stamped envelopes and get them back, you know, it's very hard to accumulate a lot of rejections that way. But now, you know, I can write for the TLS, right? Which my father-in-law who lived in Toronto could not. So I can get a lot of rejections from the TLS, right? Or, <laughs> or wherever. And so, yeah, I think we're living in an age where, you know, rejection has sort of spread exponentially with the internet. It's sped up. It can be more immediate, as you exactly. said. It can be more immediate and it can be more, it can just be a lot more common and more regular part of your life. I have to say that memory of the physical that you've just brought up, the very first review I ever wrote was for the TLS. And I printed it out, of course, and I faxed it, I think from, as we did in those days, a newsagent's shops. And then I didn't really kind of believe that the magic of the fax had worked. Bear with me. And so I walked my copy round to the TLS offices. Wow. Belt and braces. It was such an enormous kind of honour. I thought, what if it just didn't get there? Yeah, I know. Well, I I mean, my father-in-law, who was a freelancer, like, forever, I mean, he literally had his 
newspaper would send him taxi cab chits and he would send the manuscripts of his columns by taxi, you know, to the newspaper. Right. And that meant really he could only be rejected within his city. He probably physically saw the faces of everyone who rejected him. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, I've been rejected by thousands of people that I will never meet physically or know in any other way. It's just a sort of different reality. Well, it kind of begs the question that, though, doesn't it? Is it in some way better to see the faces of the people doing the rejection? Or is there something really sort of psychically overwhelming by the thought of these great disembodied, faceless masses who might be rejecting you? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think... um I mean, one of the questions of this book is now, is it harder now to be a writer than ever before? Does it just feel that way, right? I sort of have a yes and no answer to that because I think we're kind of returning to the historical norm. I mean, there has never been a good time to be a writer. I mean, I think that's one of the lessons of this book where you go through all this history and you realize like, oh my God, like James Joyce never made a living doing this, right? I mean, you kind of know that, but then on the other hand, you're like, that is ridiculous. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that is that is just an insane fact. And the same thing goes for Herman Melville and so on. This is absolutely standard, right? And I don't think our time is worse or better than any other time. It's just different. And I do think that digital stuff just makes it, you're facing more rejection. You're facing more failure. Although, you know, they all faced a lot of failure. I mean, the book was sort of inspired by that George Orwell quote in the epigraph, which is, any life seen from the inside is nothing but a series of defeats. I mean, I just can't stop thinking about that line because it's so true. And, you know, I, I think that's true for everyone now, but it was also true, you know, in the 1920s or the 19th century or, you know, the second century AD. Before we go back through history and this book, which is, you know, it, it's a compact book. It's absolutely stuffed with histories and writers with relative success and failure, largely failure. But very near the beginning, you hint at the idea that we see failure in a different way. And I was really intrigued by your report of something called FailCon, a mm. conference where people, I mean, this is in a business context rather than a literary one, where people basically yeah. get together to, to kind of celebrate their failures. I mean, the idea sounds horrific to me, but there is a, a different sort of attitude towards defeats and failures, isn't there? Well, I mean, you know, what I was responding to there is very specifically the um, tech lord mania for failure, which is actually, FailCon, I think, started in 2014, but I think it's actually peaking again now. I mean, people in Silicon Valley brag about their failures. I mean, it's it's humble bragging. You know, it's a backhand self-insult, I guess, is the way to put it. But they, they're wrong. Like, that version of failure, that, like, well, I failed at this first company, I did this startup and it didn't work. And that's why, you know, I've changed the world now by X. I mean, it's so transparent, right? It's so transparently, you know, value success over failure. Whereas I think when you read Beckett and he says fail better, he's talking about something different. You know, he's talking about failing with grace and failing with passion. And that's that's a much different, much more powerful idea. I think I think one that resonates a lot more with writers. Absolutely. And well, I might say that, you know, obviously there are enormously costly failures in publishing history, but by and large, mm. when a, a writer doesn't make it, that's very painful and often penury inducing to them, but it doesn't tend to take down many thousands of shareholders, does it? I mean, there's rather sort of less at stake than there well, is. Well, I mean, I think there's some uh, wives and children's of, of failed writers that would say it comes at a cost. But yeah, it tends to be, you know, and then the booze, you know, like, and that tends to add to the failure. But yeah, I take your point. This is a private failure. 
and the writing is, you know, I think that's also the power of failure in writing is that it is sort of between these two privacies, which means that failure is kind of built into the process. I mean, that's what I found really interesting about writing this book is that, you know, I had all these anecdotes that made me feel better. But then when I really started to think about it, I was like, you know, failure is such an integral part of this process that it's not it's not just the career stuff and it's not just the rejection. It's that when you write, you're throwing out stuff. That's what writing is, really, is throwing out stuff that you've written that you now hate, right? And getting to, you know, getting to the tiny little fragments that mean something to other people. And it, it's the process itself, that magical leap between privacies, that means that failure is kind of absolutely built into the process in a way that it is in no other activity, if that makes sense. There is just no escape from it. And the number of writers novelists perhaps in particular that one talks to that I've talked to in the course of interviewing them who say at least that they they cannot bear their previous work I mean they don't look at it that's gone that's done they hope you know just to fail in a slightly less dreadful way the next time I was very intrigued by so many of these anecdotes but one in particular that stuck with me was that of Samuel Johnson and just this this idea mm. of his failure double it is something that chimes so much with us it's sort of the other side of that you know don't you hate it when your friends are successful kind of thing he had a much much less successful contemporary who he looked to didn't he to to think well I'm not doing quite so badly yeah yeah well I mean Savage was and I mean I really believe the life of Richard Savage is the best thing Johnson ever wrote and I mean I think it's a total masterpiece i mean one of those you know extremely rare work i mean one of the greatest works of english prose ever written but you know it, it's so obviously wrong too you know when i read it for this book i was like he's so obviously justifying inexcusable behavior right and he's taking the side of a fraud which you don't really think of as johnson right you think of him absolutely as this person who tells the truth about everyone, even his friends, but this one friend who was a complete screw up, you know, like he would borrow money, spend it all on clothes. He was drunk. He had these farcical claims to an aristocratic thing. He killed a guy in a brawl over a seat at a coffee house, which, you know, was entirely his fault. And Johnson excuses it all. Johnson forgives it all. And I think that kind of sense, that companionship in, in loss, right, that is so much of, of writerly relationships, it comes across so clearly in that book. If you read it as kind of, instead of the truth as a lie, right? And yeah, I, I found it incredibly moving, actually, to read it again. These pairings, I mean, frequently crop up through history, and indeed in this book, Pound and Elliot, for example, and I recently mm. read Matthew Hollis's biography of The Wasteland, and you're so struck by the detail of how incredibly preeminent and prodigious Pound was and how his yeah. star fell. And he was trying to help Eliot. He was worried not only that Eliot's genius be seen by the public at large, but also that he have the funds to live, that he find places to write, that he is constantly advanced. He is a sort of impresario at a certain stage of his career, Pound. And then it all just falls apart. Now, those sort of arcs of writers lives are absolutely fascinating and you are sort of led to think yeah. well is there something twinned in these two writers 
that one has to rise and the other has to fall somehow. Yeah, I mean, I find the case of Pound to be just profoundly mysterious, really. Because, you know, he was so huge. I mean, you really forget that, he, I mean, he was modernism, basically. I mean, it's not just the wasteland. It's He told E. Cummings not to write with uppercase letters. He, you know, he told Hemingway to cut adjectives. He got James Joyce published. I mean, he was, and then his own work, Imagism and so on. And then, like, he is, he is it, really, in some, you know, very a way that I don't think we have any analog to now at all. Like someone who is absolutely at the center of, of literary culture in a in a totally dominant way. Then, you know, he writes Canto 72, which is about a heroic Italian peasant woman leading Canadian soldiers into a minefield and watching the Canadians blown up. And he just completely loses the plot, right? And then he he enters a kind of hell, you know, like a Dante-esque hell where the crime is the punishment. And... um you know, I just found his meeting with Ginsburg and Ginsburg's diaries is like the cruelest thing that could have happened to him, really. I mean, just so, so painful. Tell us what happens. Well, I mean, Ginsburg comes along and Ginsburg is, um, again, a poet that we just don't have any analog for. I mean, Hal sold over a million copies, but Ginsburg's also at the center of fake Western Buddhism, like hipsterism, drug culture. Like, he's really at the origin point of this. I mean, he sees Pound, and then he, I mean, almost right after he goes and sees John Lennon and Yoko Ono in Montreal recording Give Peace a Chance. I mean, he's really at the center of culture. And then he comes to Pound in, was it Milan? I think it's Milan. And he insists on loving him. Like, he insists on saying what a hero he is and spouting all this nonsense to Pound. And, I mean, you're talking about Pound, who you know, really knows Buddhism and really knows Chinese poetics in a way that Ginsburg would never, you know, never approach. And it must be horrible to meet a parody of yourself, right? It's like he's seeing a version of himself that is totally degraded intellectually, and it's the opposite of everything that he aspired to intellectually. And yet you have to affirm him because, you know, Ginsburg, whatever his flaws, was not a fascist, right? So it's this scenario, which is, you know, you really have to get to the details. Like, I mean, the scene of like Ginsburg playing the Beatles, early Beatles to Ezra Pound and explaining to him how they're just like Beethoven. I mean, what could be worse for Ezra Pound to suffer than that? You do go into in the book this specter of mental disarray, of madness, but you are very interesting about the idea of suffering, as suffering as somehow an indicator of success, a corollary to genius. I mean, you're very sceptical about this, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I really think when you examine literary history, you know, what you see is that there's no thread at all, right? Like, great writers are, they come in all shapes and sizes. I mean, they really do. Like, they come in all different classes, they come in all different races, all different genders, they come in all different forms. You know, some of them are such prudes that they, you know, can't deal with women at all. Some of them are born in whorehouses, right? I mean, they're, they they come from all different walks of life. Some of them travel, some of them never leave the small village where they were born. There's just no pattern. And certainly I don't think suffering is required at all. I don't think suffering ennobles. But on the other hand, you know, there is a part of this where I think resistance is required, right? Where it's like to write something meaningful, you kind of have to feel, they don't want to hear this, but I have to tell them. It's interesting because it's not just the stories of suffering writers that led me to that conclusion. There are plenty of those. But it's also that there are a few writers who get given everything and they stop writing, right? Like Ralph Ellison, which is a, who's a perfect example where 
you know, after the Invisible Man, he really could have written anything and it would have been widely acclaimed and sold out. But he couldn't. He couldn't. And then there's other examples like the New Yorker writer who wrote Joe Gould's Secret, who, you know, they called the greatest magazine writer of his age. And, you know, he could never write again. So there does, you know, suffering is not necessary. But on the other hand, I think there is a part of this where perseverance is really a serious virtue. It's required in order to do this. Like, you have to be persevering in order to make meaning. And sometimes, of course, the suffering, you know, which obviously suffering takes different forms, it exists to different degrees. Sometimes it does provide the material to which a writer can react, can take as as their subject. I mean, you write about Anna Akhmatova, for example, who in her youth wrote entirely, you know, in a privileged youth, wrote entirely different kinds of work than yeah. famous, famous Requiem. You know, there was a case where it was the suffering actually affected the mode of writing. I mean, it was extraordinary. Still to come on the show... Nat Segnit talking about the real work on The Mystery of Mastery by Adam Gopnik. And if you've enjoyed the podcast this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to it for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. First things first, what does the title, The Real Work, what does that mean and where does it come from? Well, it's from Magician's Shop Talk. So what it means is that once you've mastered, once you've got the technique of, uh, let's say, a a close-up card trick uh, under your belt, the real work comes when you add some magic to it. You you make something that's merely efficient into something that's elegant and, and delightful. It's the sort of it's the superfluity essential to all art and, and human accomplishment, if you like. And it's it's also crucially, it's not about being original, is it really? It's not the guy who devises the trick. It's the guy who sort of makes it beautiful and makes it work and makes the, everyone go, ooh, ah, when they see it. Precisely. So, yeah, so the, the trick itself is from the repertoire, essentially, but the real work comes in the individual magician, what, what the individual magician brings to it, what... what uh, what frills and furblows and elegance he or she brings to it. Mm-hmm. it's part, yeah, sorry, yeah. I said he because he was saying he makes a point of saying it often starts with he's quite specific, twelve year old boys. <laughs> yes, that's true. That is it is it is so it appears quite a gendered activity. More male magicians than, than female. But is it a kind yeah. of question of style partly or flair? Is it like the sort of equivalent of the 
garnish on the cheese souffle or whatever. Yes, I think so. It, I mean, it put me slightly in mind of what um, John Updike said in defence of those apologists for what's sometimes called invisible prose. Uh, his prose, of course, being highly visible. Uh, his argument being that, you know, when we look at a painting, we are we are aware that we're looking at a painting, not at what, what is being depicted. And it's that style, it's that uh, subjectivity, it's that sort of human um, imperfection, in fact, in some ways, that reminds us of what we're seeing and gives us the experience of art or of accomplish accomplishment or mastery. Um magic he actually talks quite a lot about magic doesn't he it's, it's quite unexpected and, and and even though he's not the one learning the magic but it's, it's well, his, that's his son learning the magic isn't it for a that, while that's true yes actually that's one of the things i rather liked about the book is that is that um uh, as much as I, I admired the first chapter which is about him learning to draw better um you know, a glance at the contents page might might give you a little kind of flicker of disappointment that it's going to be like one of those sort of panel four series whereby uh, Claudia Winkman or something is given a challenge every week um, but actually the book resists formula in that way in that after that drawing chapter he moves on to uh, to close-up magic from a slightly different perspective as you say it starts with his son's interest and uh, kind of budding mastery of close-up um, close-up magic and then becomes a rather new New Yorkery piece of kind of repertorial of the big schism in American magic between classicists, traditionalists like this guy, Jamie Ian Swiss, and the big showmen like David Blaine, who are really trying to erase the distinction between between magic and performance art. So and then it becomes yeah, about sort of illusion and making you think about illusion and making you think about the kind of limits of human capacity, I suppose. I'm put in mind of, you know, him lying in a glass box or submerging himself in water. It's that sort of death-defying feet kind of thing isn't it rather than the rabbits out of hats sort of stuff that's right but that forms part of what i think is a really excellent sort of analysis of of the epistemics of magic really that um Gottlieb gives us uh you know he conceives of it so via this guy jamie ian swiss as an experiment in empathy as a kind of contest of minds so that magicians simply have a superior grasp of the way our minds work and the, the secret to a trick might indeed be banal extremely simple but set up so that we as the viewer are una unable to imagine it so the magician leads us down an explanatory highway as Gottmik puts it from which there is no exit or better still from which there are six exits all of them blocked and that's where the mastery of the great magicians lie Hmm. It's sort of in their theory of other minds, them them yeah. m being able to to feel, think about what you will feel and make you feel, um, you know, wonder and awe. I suppose that's what they're after, isn't it? Precisely. And there's a, there's an American magician called Whit Hayman who Hayden rather who um, Gottmik quotes say, uh, saying uh, magic is putting a burr under the saddle of the mind, which I thought mm. was kind of nice. Well, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable that though. I mean, I think it's supposed to, I suppose. <laughs> I but think I, I think you are. I think you are. It is. It is a feeling yes. of kind of delighted discomfort. Yes. I've gone down a rabbit hole here now. Why are magicians all men, or largely men? Where are the female magicians? What? Why is it gendered? He sort well, of well, doesn't deal with that, does he? Really? Not, a, not at all. I mean, it really that really isn't touched on. Um, Sorry. I've, I've <laughs> no, it's okay. It's, it is interesting. I'm just fascinated by it. <laughs> but you see, it's also about trying to teach yourself things. Now, I've never 
I must say, even as a child, I don't think been tempted to learn a card trick, but maybe I should start to redress this this kind of gender this imbalance. this this gender imbalance. I yeah. think you should. <laughs> well, I suppose the point is traditionally. It's the, the the woman is always getting sawn in half rather than doing the sawing. I suppose that's the glamorous assistant. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps it's just um, that men are natural liars, I guess, and that it's it's really all about fraudulence and and um, uh, distraction and wrong footing the viewer or the participant. I don't know. This is this is the I most. I feel I've most... utterly derailed us, Nat. I have utterly derailed us now. <laughs> I didn't provide right, that. Let's it's what we might call the real work. I've done the real work of the podcast there, of putting my own individual slightly chaotic stamp on it. But yes, uh, it is about, isn't it, this book about learning stuff, about reaching yeah. a certain point in your life when you may think you don't have to learn anything else, but why not? I suddenly learn the language or something else. Well, precisely. Um, and there's a very nice point he makes towards the end, which is that um, he admits that he can take great satisfaction in getting a little bit better at the things he knows he'll never be very good at, driving, for instance. Whereas the one discipline he really has devoted his life to, the one thing that he has a shot at mastering, in other words, writing books like this, is a source of constant dissatisfaction. Because in achieving that level of near mastery, whatever you want to call it, he can see how quite how far off real perfection is. So he says, we can do some things badly and still feel good about having done them, and some things well and still feel badly about not doing them well. But there's comfort in this. Equilibrium of mind is achieved by doing both. Mm. It's, I was wondering about that. He does talk about the role of the critic, doesn't he? And and and, and think about it in the chapter when he's learning to draw, but precisely yeah. because he, he has worked for an art, as an art critic for a long time and feels a bit uncomfortable that he can't, you know, draw anything at all. Well, um, yes, he, feel, he feels pretty fraudulent criticizing stuff he's unable to practice himself did any of that did did that any of that chime with you as a critic i really i really love that chapter i have to say um it's a it's a slightly different case to kind of um i mean i suppose i could describe myself pompously as a kind of writer critic so there's less of a distance between uh what i criticize and and what i spend the rest of my time 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 doing the case with with uh but he approaches it in a very interesting way i think because actually Mm. the the majority of the the art that he was covering as critic from new yorker was conceptual that had stored life drawing away in the attic but in recent years so he says he's become more and more taken by the figurative to pure craft which of course he lacks entirely um, you know, he 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 um, gets interested in the ancient tradition of atelier realism. So he apprentices himself to this woman he describes as a real hard ass, a, a neo-realist painter called J- Jacob Collins, whose mission is to revive that old tradition without succumbing to, to sentiment or, or cliche. So he sort of walks the delicate line between classicism and reactionary grievance keep, uh, keeping, as he puts it. And so under this guy's uh, guidance, he learns to look. He learns to see what he actually sees, Gottnick, that is. Um, not what his teacher describes as the kind of predetermined symbol set of arms and torso and legs in the case of a, uh, in the case of a life model, but shapes as Gottnick subjectively perceives them, just as we might you know, see a, a, a weasel or a camel in a cloud. So he looks at a life model and sees, quote, a kind of hamster with soft rabbit ears where his shoulder joined his arm. 
And so I, I suppose I, I, it chimed with me to the extent that, that art is thus, life drawing is thus shown to be like every other discipline, uh, a kind of slow carpentering of fragments into the illusion of a harmonious whole. And on the other hand, a kind of species of relinquishment, really, a kind of capitulation to feeling or instinct. So it's at once an effort of attentional focus that's also a letting go. Yeah, it, yes, it's, it's well, and I'm, I'm going to bring it down to earth a bit more by mentioning what his driving instructor says, who, who, who says it, who sums it all up, doesn't he, in one key piece of advice. Become the noodle. <laughs> there you go. You become, become the noodle. The noodle. We've all, we all have to become, <laughs> we are becoming noodles ourselves in our mastery of this podcast. But that's it. Okay, it's, I, it is, I need it that, I need that unpacked. Or, or cooked al dente, or whatever it is. What is the noodle, and why do I have to become it? What his driving instructor Arturo appears to mean is concentrate and relax, and that's the trick to driving. In this case, in Manhattan, which he's never been had the guts to do, uh, and Arturo teaches him to concentrate very hard on the road in front of him, but also not to get too wound up about it. Um, I think Arturo absolutely does mean it. It seems to me Arturo is a very good teacher, isn't he? Because he gets he is, driving no, in the middle of New York within, yeah. uh, you know, an hour. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's an it's an excellent bit of advice. Mm, mm. It's that you have to the noodle is limp, Alex. So you have to you have to not hold anything. You have to just sort of let go, and and also be incredibly focused so that you don't die. I see. Is that, yes, is that helpful? Well, it <laughs> does seem. That excellent, you know, relax but pay attention advice that people give you in lots of, you know, it's like being told to calm down when you're feeling not calm. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Easy to say, difficult to do, but I get that. But going back to the, the you know, the drawing advice, it yeah. does seem to me that that more sort of empathetic, emotional kind of feeling sort of your way into something does sound more up my street than what I think or perhaps unfairly as the kind of more Gladwellian sort of 10,000 hours and geniuses and outliers and all that kind of thing. It seems more approachable and friendly in a way. Is that fair? Well, you know, coincidentally enough, I'm exactly 9,999 hours into my project to debunk the 10,000 hours. <laughs> Catch me at exactly <laughs> Nearly there. The right, the right oh, one. imagine if it all <laughs> fell apart now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that, that's, that's, again, one of the great strengths of the book, which is that he is, uh, Gopnik is kind of open to that, to that, uh, that, way of thinking in that he conceives of mastery as achievable via a series of kind of micro achievements which you know and once you achieve some kind of competence then those micro micro achievements kind of flow into one another into this he compares it rather uh pleasingly to the um phenomenon of persistence of vision in cinema it's lots of little moments uh smoothed over to give the illusion of, of, of continuity um but that's so that's on the one hand but on the other hand he's still kind of open to the mystery as the subtitle as the subtitle suggests he avoids that sort of tedious and mechanistic and inherently sort of neoliberal idea of making everything measurable and acquirable like an mba uh by not explaining it not explaining away the mystery of of, of mastery by leaving some element of mystery uh, preserved. Mm. He's also got that lovely thing in terms of specifically of the 10,000 hours. 
He says that thing about that we that we we look at the people who are out absolutely outstanding in their field and we think they oh, well, yeah. they've done their ten thousand hours and they're marvelous. But actually, he says there are lots and lots and lots and lots of people who are also really good at it. We know three chess players, but there are you know hundreds of thousands of really good chess players, and 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 that's just as valid as the three champions that we know. And it's the same whether you're talking about cooking or drawing or chess or which I think is a very good point. It's not it's just a really about. Good point the Beatles or, you know, Michelangelo or whoever it is. Well, precisely. Um, but also, importantly, in the case of the, the Beatles and, and, uh, and Michelangelo and Roger Federer, I mean, I don't want to, to watch them and, and think, yeah, well, they've just put in their 10,000 hours. I want to be floored by them. I want to be rendered awestruck by their God-given talent. So, I mean, reading something like Outliers, where, which, you know, popularised the 10,000-hour theory, I felt a bit like, do you remember kind of Dottie in... Tom Stoppard's jumpers, who is heartbroken that men have landed on the moon and thus killed its poetry. I, 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 I conceive of the 10,000 hour theory like that, you know, leave the mastery alone, both for those people who are distinctly average at everything like me and for, you know, the world's handful of geniuses. Now, but Bob, I think... does he have something to say for, I mean, Gopnik or any of the people that he talks to about the in defence of the average, as it were, because there's quite a lot of things I'd like to have a basic competence at, you know, that they would be useful to me or I might just get pleasure out of doing them. Um, learning things, particularly as you go on through life, I mean, it doesn't always have to be a matter of acing, does it? Precisely. Uh, no, and that, and that as, you know, as I, as I mentioned, that's, that's, that's sort of um, where he ends up at the end of the book. time for this week our thanks go to Stephen March and that segment and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardee and helped this week by Alex Lee we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me Alex Clark goodbye <laughs> <laughs>